0: Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy goodness toward us and allowing us to gather one more time around Thy Word, and we look forward to the things that Thy Spirit will teach us in this afternoon hour. Though it has been so long since Thou, Lord Jesus, has walked the dusty roads of this world, yet Thou hast seen fit to leave behind Thy words for us, and we in the Spirit can join those who heard Thee in person and we anticipate now sitting at thy feet for learning. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. As Brother Edmund was speaking this morning in the morning service, he he mentioned a passage of scripture, and I'd like to read that. It's found in Mark's Gospel, chapter six. The sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel. I'd like to read a portion of that scripture. I'd like to begin reading with the first verse, Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this, which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. And he called unto him the 12, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only. No scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. I've read until the 16th verse. As Brother Edmund was speaking this morning, uh, reminding us what had happened in the Corinthian church, and how there they had the issue of partiality and divisions of groups of people. They, they seemed to gather around certain key teachers. And uh, Paul was noted as, as one whom by some in the church of Corinth said he's, his bodily presence is weak and his, 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 uh, his, his demeanor or his, his appearance is contemptible. He's not a polished speaker like Apollos. Apollos, he's got it all together. There's a brother with some gifts. We like to listen to him. And Paul had to remind them that it wasn't about gifts, but it was instead about the wisdom that comes from above. Here we have the Lord of glory himself come in the flesh, walking among fallen men and women, And preaching. So if you ever think that it's about the speaker, read these words carefully to realize that the very best preacher with the very best message that was ever preached was rejected by some. That should give us pause. Why would that be? It's true that Christ spoke some shocking things. He said things about himself that seemed controversial. But on the other hand, he also did great miracles that the people could not deny. So if they needed proof, they had that as well. So what was the problem? Why wasn't Christ heard by some? There was only one thing while Christ was here that he marveled at. I don't know if you realize this. Nothing surprised Christ except for one thing. And that was faith. The presence or lack of it. That shocked Christ. He wasn't shocked by scandal. He wasn't shocked by uh, sin. He wasn't shocked by people's gifts or what they would say to him. He wasn't shocked by the insults that were hurled at him. He was only shocked by either the presence or absence of faith. Here we read he marveled because of their unbelief. In another place, we read about the centurion who sent his servant to go speak to Christ. And Jesus turned around. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. And here I think we find the key now as to why a message is either received or rejected by its hearers. You see, when the gospel goes forth, there is always a moral quality to it. The gospel makes a statement about the state of our hearts. And based on that, we now need to make a decision. Will we receive it? Or will we reject it? On that is what people's opinion turns. That's it. It's not the delivery. It's not the language. There have been more capable preachers in this pulpit than me. And I dare say you won't hear anything particularly new this afternoon. And that is as it should be. It's really up to you. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. We sing that in one of our hymns. Someone came to Jesus with an issue to untangle. I think it was the issue of the inheritance that someone asked for him to uh, divide. Jesus rejected that position. And then he made a statement. I think it was in that same passage. I'm going from memory here, so forgive me if I'm wrong. He said, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I tell you nay, but a sword, division. What was he talking about? The angels themselves announced peace on earth and goodwill to men. What was this sword that he was talking about? Well, exactly what I'm speaking to you about today. God makes a moral pronouncement and it's up to you now to decide on which side of that blade you will position yourself. It says when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue as was his pattern. The Sabbath meant worship, Worship in congregation with those who believed in God or professed belief in God, and so Christ rightly, every Sabbath, was in the synagogue. If anyone had any excuse for not attending church because of hypocrites, it would have been him. He could have rightly said, These people here, they don't know what they're talking about, even. They don't have the right attitudes toward God. They don't have the right understanding of God. Their worship is corrupted. But no, he came. Why? Because we needed it. We needed it. And they heard him teach. You know, I would have loved to hear Christ teach, I would have loved to have heard one of his sermons. Someone said once if he could pick any moment in the life of Christ to experience live himself firsthand, it would have been this. He would have loved to have been the one who was with those two disciples on their way to Emmaus when Christ appeared in a disguised form and opened their minds that they should receive the scriptures. I think that's a pretty good answer. I would have loved to have been there too. Wouldn't it have been great to be in the greatest Bible school in the world and have it opened under the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, my problem would be I wouldn't be able to remember it all. And, you know, as they, were, as they were talking, just trying to take all that in. But I think if by some strange miracle we were able to have, let's say, one of Christ's great sermons up on YouTube, and everyone could watch it, I think you would see the exact same division that happened back then, today. Because a moral situation would be brought forward and people would find themselves either on one side or on the other. To some, it would be the greatest sermon they had ever heard. To others, he would have been some Jewish pretender who had turned his back on the tradition of his fathers, maybe, and was teaching some form of blasphemy. That was the reaction back then. And I believe it would be no different today. So if you're waiting for the right preacher to hear the message, to either change your mind or change your heart, I'm sorry, you'll be waiting an eternity, really. Christ himself said to the Pharisees, one day you're going to seek me and you won't find me and you're going to die in your sins. Those are the most chilling words in Scripture to me. He was telling them that one day there's going to come a point where you're going to realize you really need a Savior and he will not be there. He will be of no use to you because you'll be past that point of moral decision and now there will remain only rejection. I, I pray that nobody in the hearing of my voice this afternoon will, will find themselves in that position. As it was back then, they found fault as well. Is not this the carpenter? People could say that about me. Is this not the graphic designer? Is this not the engineer? We know who his parents are. We know why he talks this way. We know what his upbringing was and his bias and his slant and People found fault with Christ as well. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. We know his relations. We know where he's from. He's nothing special. I don't know if they ever stop to think, well, what, what are you really looking for? In another place in Scripture it says, the word of God is nigh thee. You don't have to go into heaven to get it. You don't have to go down to hell on the other side of the grave to hear what what the truth really is. You can hear it by the foolishness of preaching right now. But that seems too simple, too easy, too common. If this really was such a special word, why isn't the church packed? Why don't we have people fighting for a spot in our sanctuary? well, exactly for the reason that I gave you before. It divides. And what it does, God has said, is up to you. Christ himself preached. He began his ministry with the words, the same words as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The point of decision is here. Turn around. Rethink your life. I've determined one thing. I'm not an evangelist, and I don't know that I have the gift of evangelism, but in the in the few opportunities I've had to speak to other people about the gospel of Christ, I've noticed one thing that's a constant. People don't seem to mind the idea of a Savior or of a God. That's actually not that offensive to them. I'd say few are actually in the camp of, say, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and others that are really kind of strident atheists. Okay, yeah, maybe there's a God. I like the idea of a Savior, the story of Jesus coming in a manger. Nice, nice, I like that. Gives me warm fuzzies. But when it comes to changing my life back off, I get to decide what's good for me. And that is the offense of the cross. Right there. Someone once said, in the heart of every man or woman, there's both a cross and a throne. And fallen man, and even redeemed man, is very loath to give up that throne. We'll gladly give Jesus the cross and let him do the dying for us, but the throne's mine. And it ought, ought to be exactly the opposite. We need to say with the Apostle Paul, I die daily and let Christ sit on the throne of our hearts. Then we're in the right moral position. Then heaven is open to us. Jesus said unto them a prophet is not without honor but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could do and he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. No one is ever forced into the kingdom of God. God never drags anyone kicking and screaming into his kingdom. An invitation is given. Statements are made without apology. Sometimes without explanation. And it's up to us now to do something with that. God created us, it says, in his own image. Male and female created he them. And one of the things about being created in the image of God is that we are autonomous to a degree. We are given freedom to a degree. And God expects us to use that freedom, to use it properly. He expects us, in the words, I think it was of Tennyson, to make our wills his. And in so doing, find, find the fulfillment, find the satisfaction, the happiness that we've been seeking for. That's how God made us. And so it was that God respects our will. You realize that everything else in creation must do as God says? When God created, He told the waves so far and no further. He told the trees so high and no higher. But when it came to man, He said, It's all open to you, just one restriction, and you'll live or die by that decision. You have a choice. Man, really, in the grand scheme of things, is the only creature God created that can say no to God. Have you thought about that? That's a big thought. Everything else must snap to attention when God speaks, but only man gets to say no. But there's a consequence to that no. And he marveled because of their unbelief. What was it about their unbelief that made him marvel? I don't know for sure. I'm not Christ. But I think that maybe one of the things that he marveled about, about their unbelief, was how can you deny what I'm telling you? People have asked me before, why do you believe the Bible is true? And the answer that I've given is pretty straightforward, maybe unsatisfying to them, but very satisfying to me. I believe the Bible is true because it tells me the truth about myself. I see myself accurately reflected in its pages. And any book that can read me like that must be telling the truth about other things as well. You know, when the hypnotists and the charlatans of this world put on their show for people, one of the things they like to do is tell them things about themselves that they think nobody else would know. And it's shocking, right? Oh, how could he know that? But when I read in its pages, the things like I read in Romans and can identify with them some 2,000 years almost after they were written. I say, this book's got something for me. I need to keep reading. And then as I've seen other things in, in the historical record, in the natural world, that reflect the truth of this book that's so many thousands of years old when you go to the Old Testament, and still current. What else am I missing? I think maybe what Christ marveled at was For those that reject this, what do you have as an alternative? It's one thing to find fault and to pick at something else, but what are you building in response? And that's a question I would put out to those that are perhaps unwilling or maybe even think themselves unable to accept what the Bible says. What will you cling to? What will you respond? What will you show as a better way? I haven't seen anything convincing. The hope that the atheist holds out is no hope at all in my opinion. A bitter a bitter meal they've prepared. Your life has no meaning and then you die. But you still should be good somewhere along the way. Well why? Well there isn't really any reason just sort of mutual cooperation then why not just take down the whole thing in a blaze of glory, as others have tried to do? Nihilism. Destroy yourself and everything around you. If there's no moral right or wrong, what does it matter anyway? Dark thoughts. For those that reject the moral proposition that God places before every man and woman, you will see no mighty work. You see, faith will never move somebody from unbelief to belief. Uh, Sorry, did I say that right? Miracles will never move someone from unbelief to belief. For one who has a little faith a miracle will cause that faith to grow. But for one who does not believe, even if one were sent back from the dead, they wouldn't hear him, Christ said. And so it was prophetically so. One indeed did come back from the dead, and they didn't listen to him. Even the example of Lazarus' his friend who he raised from the dead, the leaders plotted to kill him again because they didn't like what he had to say. That has to be the height of foolishness. If he raised him from the dead once, why couldn't he do it again? Why bother killing him again? It made no sense. But it just shows you the, the, what happens where, where unbelief is even a miracle will not move somebody. And so it should be. God respects our will. He will not force anyone. He is love itself. Not loving He is love. And love never coerces. You cannot command love. I may be able to command my wife to make me my dinner through threats, but I can never command love. And he called unto him the twelve. The twelve... Special disciples, again, not chosen for great um, resumes. Fishermen, carpenters. I mean, fishermen are famous for telling stories, aren't they? Tax collectors. The, 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 The hated publicans. I mean, if you're putting together your dream team, he's going about it exactly the wrong way. These group of people to spread the gospel of the coming Messiah king? But God's ways are not our ways, neither are his his thoughts our thoughts. And here we see Christ gives them power over unclean spirits, and then this, and he commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only, a walking staff. No script, that's no, no bag with extra provisions for the way. No bread, specifically no extra food. No money in their purse. But be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. Let's just stop and unpack that for a moment because I think in our days of convenience and debit cards and smartphones and 24-hour fast food, we don't really understand what this meant. So he gets together his 12 disciples, and he says, look, each of you take a staff. Don't take two coats. Why two coats? Well, pretty simple. If you have to sleep out in the open air, you really want that second coat. That means you didn't get a place to stay that night. Christ said, no, 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 you're gonna have a place to stay every night, so I don't want you to take two coats. You're gonna have to believe that. No scrip, no food to go with you. The few things that you could take with you in those days were some kind of a salted meat that couldn't spoil. You could take bread, and you could take cheese. That was about it. If there was an inn somewhere on the way, maybe you could buy something. But Christ said, nope, don't take any money with you either. And you're going to go by foot. None of this makes sense, does it? Why? Why would he do that? Why not say, make reasonable provisions just in case something doesn't go as planned? I mean, we wouldn't travel this way, would we? It would be like the equivalent of, of me telling you, okay, I want all of you to drive down to Eastern Camp like we do every summer in Virginia. One tank of gas, no money, no credit cards, no spare tire. No suitcase, no extra clothes, just what you have on your back. You're going to go down there and stay for a week. Think about it in those terms. Don't worry. Along the way, you're going to have gas for the journey. You're going to have food to eat. And when you get there, you're going to have enough clothes to wear for the week. Really? How? The foundation for Christ's ministry was going to be faith. And if his disciples couldn't exhibit it, What did they have to talk about? What did he give them, though? He gave them power. Real spiritual power. Power to cast out unclean spirits. Never cast out an unclean spirit before. But I believe if Jesus told me I should, and I knew it, I believe I'd have the faith to step out and do it because it wouldn't be me doing it anyway. Do we show, I'm going to talk now to my brothers and sisters, do we show that same degree of faith in our life? Do things in our life seem to maybe not make sense to the outside observers unless you believe what Christ is telling you? How much do we lean on our own provision and our own understanding? It's been preached on before. if we're going to preach faith to people who need to hear it, we better live faith that they can see. It's that simple. That is the miracle to the world around us. You know, when the martyrs of the past walked willingly to their death, when all they had to do was say, I don't believe in Jesus, and they'd be off. What do you think that did to those who watched? When we had brothers from our own church, some who have only recently gone to be with the Lord, that have chosen some, I think, 11 years in prison away from their family because they refused to go against the command of Christ. What do you think the effect of that faith was on those that watched them? And we, their descendants, do we have that faith? Could we do that? And I don't want to create any false dichotomies and kind of invite mind games. I mean, that's not the point. But what do you believe and why do you believe it? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till you depart from that place. I see something here that's also interesting and it's something that the Lord's been working with me on, maybe. This element of patience in the Christian life that if what I'm going through right now is what God has in mind for me, that I'm happy to stay there until he tells me to move on. And the self-help gurus, they teach uh, self-actualization. You need to just, uh, just envision it. You need to envision a, a, a better result, a better you. And then you need to make it happen. The power is within you. But how much patience do we have? Now, the Scripture also says for those that were in slavery, even the believers that were still in slavery, they said, look, if you can be made free, be made free. Use it, rather. But if God wants you to wait, are you prepared to wait on God? You know, think about it. Suppose one of these disciples shows up in a, in a city and he's offered a place to stay by a poorer family. And he stays, and as he preaches, his message is well-received. And maybe someone who's got a little bit nicer place says, well, come on over to my place. Wouldn't the natural temptation be to accept? Why not? How do we live? Is it by faith? Or do we live according to our comforts and knowledge and provision? There's another thing that's added on to the end here, to these instructions, and this also gives me pause. It says, and whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you. It doesn't say, speak badly of them and slander them. It just says, when you leave, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Now that presupposes something. That you've done everything right before that. That you've followed Christ's instruction before that. You've gone in there and you've healed the sick. You've ministered to the needs of the people. You've spoken truth, God's truth, into their situation, into their lives. But there's an understanding that even if it was an apostle of Jesus Christ who was speaking this, or even Christ himself there will be rejection. There will be those who will not receive it. And we're simply to leave it up to God. So shake off the dust, move on. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why? Sodom and Gomorrah was a pretty wicked place. Well the truth is that where light has come there's now responsibility for that light and when light is rejected the consequences are much worse than for someone who never heard the truth it's no good it's no good to point at other circumstances to say well there were there were hypocrites in the church the <clears throat> the speaker didn't know what he was talking about. The, uh, the program wasn't exciting. Uh, there weren't enough young people for my children. That, pick your excuse. There are many. But if you believe that this is the word of God, if you believe what the word is speaking about you, then you need to act. You don't want to be found in this second group. You know, there are those two that try to chart a middle course. They try to take a a neutral position. There were those that recognized the special nature of Christ's ministry and his words. They they were willing to ascribe to him some form of greatness. They said, well, you know, this might be Elias come back from the dead. He was a great prophet of God or one of the other prophets. Maybe he's John the Baptist reincarnated somehow. A great preacher. It doesn't matter what flattering words you have to say about the truth or about God. In the end, It's what did you believe. And as we looked at in James recently on Wednesday night, what you believe must come out in your actions. Anything short of that is not faith. It's up to you. You have a will. You are allowed to use it. There are consequences for how you choose. But don't look to this wooden box as the thing that's going to change you from unbelief to belief. That's with you. No man or woman will change your mind. You can only recognize the messages coming from God and then dealing with Him on that. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. And the core of the gospel message is simple. There is one who is good, and that is God. If you would be good and taste good, you must align yourselves with him. He loves you and has done everything possible to make that happen. That's the gospel. The rest is details. But that is essentially the gospel. If you will say in response to that, no, I'm good, what does the gospel have for you? The answer is nothing. This is the difficulty we have. But if you will at least allow for the fact that you are not good and that there is good out there, then you're on the path. Then you're facing the right direction because those that seek him will find him. I mentioned the poem of Alfred Lord Tennyson. It's old English words, but please follow along at least a portion of it. It's called In Memoriam. Strong son of God, immortal love, whom we that have not seen thy face, by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. Thine are these orbs of light and shade, thou madest life in man and brute, thou madest death, and lo, thy foot is on the skull which thou hast made. Thou wilt not leave us in the dust. Thou madest man. He knows not why. He thinks he was not made to die. And thou hast made him. Thou art just. Thou seemest human and divine. The highest, holiest manhood thou. Our wills are ours. To make them thine. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of Thee, and Thou, O Lord, art more than they. We have but faith. We cannot know. For knowledge is of things we see, and yet we trust it comes from Thee, a beam in darkness. Let it grow. Let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in us dwell that mind and soul, according well, may make one music as before. But vaster, we are fools and slight. We mock thee when we do not fear, but help thy foolish ones to bear. Help thy vain worlds to bear thy light. There's more, if you'd care to read it. But I think it does a good job of speaking to what we know and what we don't. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses asked God, And who shall I say sent me? And God simply said to Moses, Tell them, I am that I am sent thee. I am that I am. The reference point. The one from which all things are measured. Because when we will acknowledge the I am, then we will be in the proper place, which is, I am not. But in that place is a safe place to be because in that acknowledgement of our limits, of our lack, God's grace and mercy extends. And you only have to read Christ's high priestly prayer in John to see what God really has in mind. I in them and thou in me that we may be one. May each one seek that, and they will never be dissatisfied. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said, and may he dismiss us now with his blessing. Amen.